Scaling Up Nation, your programs are of the highest quality. That means your products need to be that same high quality. And that's why I trust Scranton Associates to help me bring the best to my customers. They're a fourth generation business with over 100 years of experience. Scranton Associates can help you with biocides and both powder and liquid blends. If you have a question about your products, give them a call and they will help you review your formulas. They can also review your safety data sheets and labels. Folks, they know what they're doing when they're looking at these and they can prevent you from getting costly fines. Scranton Associates can handle all of your blending needs from the smallest order up to tanker cars. Find out why I trust Scranton Associates for yourself. Call them today or visit ScrantonAssociates.com. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore and Nation, it's finally here. We are at the Association of Water Technologies annual convention. Of course, last year we had a virtual convention. This year's in person. Of course, I pre-record these, so you are not hearing from me live in the exhibit hall, but I have recorded this with just such anticipation of you being able to go to the AWT convention. There's so many people out there in the Scaling Up Nation that I've met through AWT that have learned about the podcast through AWT and most importantly, have given me suggestions about what you want this show to cover. So it's my hope that during this week of the AWT convention that you have tried to find me and let me know what this show has meant to you. Let me know the things that you've really enjoyed on the show. And I am always happy to take criticism. How can I make this show better? You know, it's always funny. Some people might say I have to release on Wednesday or Monday or Tuesday. And uh, for those of you that have been listening to the show, you know I have released the show on just about every day of the week. We settled on Friday. I answered on an earlier show. I did that so Brian Katarski of Aqua Phoenix could listen why he cut his grass on Saturday to a brand new episode. So right or wrong, we're releasing on Friday. But even if it's criticism about when we release the show, I want to hear about it. Everything you tell me about Scaling Up H2O allows me and my staff to make it better. So let me know who you want me to talk to. Let me know what topics you want me to discuss. Let me know what you want me to explore on your favorite industrial water treatment podcast. You know, looking back at the year since we were at the AWT convention, and by at, I mean we were all sitting at our desk enduring a pandemic so much has happened. I think we've learned a lot. I think we've changed how we do our business in some ways. Some ways have gone back to normal. Other ways are just here to stay. But here's the thing. Everything we do, it challenges us to do it better. Now, none of us wished that the pandemic would come on any of us, but it did. And water treatment especially got through it. And we learned so many things by going through the pandemic that many of us are far better on the other end because we challenged what we did just because that was the way that we always did it. Now, something that helped me so much was the Rising Tide Mastermind. There are many members in the Rising Tide Mastermind that are members of the Scaling Up Nation. We've got about 43 members in the Rising Tide Mastermind, and we didn't have that many when the pandemic started. In fact, when the Mastermind started, it was just a few months, and then our friend COVID-19 gave us a visit. And I think I've mentioned on the show before, but I had support with my peers, None of us knew how to weather a pandemic. We had no idea if our customers were going to pay us. And I have to say, our accounts receivable was as high as it had ever been. 
Did that mean that I wasn't going to be able to pay my people? Did that mean that I needed to negotiate new terms with my vendors? All of these things brought questions that we all had, but here was a key benefit that I have that I think so many people out there need but didn't have. And that was a connection to other people that were going through the same thing. And now we could ask those questions together and we could learn from each other's trials. We could learn from each other's mistakes. We could pick something up where somebody else left off. And now we completed a huge task, but maybe we only had to do half of it or a third of it or a fourth of it because we were all working on it. I cannot say enough good things about being a member of a group like the Rising Tide Mastermind. Now, as an industrial water treater, I do want you to consider becoming a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. You can do that by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm also going to tell you that the Rising Tide Mastermind is not right for everybody. There have been some members that we've, after an interview, just decided that this is not the right group for them. And I hope that they do find the right group, but there are people out there that are listening to this right now that the Rising Tide Mastermind is the perfect group for them. And I want those people to check out the Rising Tide Mastermind. I wanna have an interview with you So one, I can ask some questions and make sure you're right for the mastermind, but I also want to make sure that the mastermind is right for you. The simple fact is life is hard. Any doubt of that, just relive last year. But we don't have to live it alone. And when we can share our experiences, our successes, and even ask others to give us a little boost up every now and then, That's what the mastermind is all about. And just a few short weeks ago, we had our first live event where all the members of the Rising Tide Mastermind came together. And Nation, I cannot tell you what an amazing experience that was. It was as if some of the best friends uh, ever have come back together. It was like we all went to college together. And of course, we meet on a weekly Zoom call. And that's great, but to be able to be with each other in person, there's no substitute to that. And I and the amazing staff here at the Scaling Up H2O podcast and also the Rising Tide Mastermind team, we put on a live event that was just amazing. And I want to describe it to you, but if you weren't there, it's just really hard to put into words. I will say this, everybody left there and they were so much better connected to each other, and they had tools, they had handles to take back from that live event, not only to reinvest in their weekly calls with the Rising Tide Mastermind, but to take back to their teams, to take back to their families, to take back to all the organizations that they're a part of and make those things better. And I'm going to say that during the live event, we pushed the boundaries of what made us comfortable. I shared some personal things there that a lot of people don't know about me. And that wasn't easy. That was hard. And sometimes we have to be vulnerable in order to get the real information out, in order to make that real connection. And we definitely did that at the live event. And that's something that we have to do if we're in charge of people. If we're in a management role, and we're going to talk about what that term means with our next guest. But there's so many things that we have to be able to do in order to lead people correctly. And that's what we're talking about today with our guest And I know you're going to walk away from this interview with so many new tools and things that you want to try. So ladies and gentlemen, here's the interview. 
My lab partner today is Bill Ekstrom, CEO of Excel Institute and Excel Sports and Excel Education. Lots of companies there. Bill, I can't wait to talk to you. I can't wait to just share with the Scaling Up Nation how you coach, what you do, and especially just give them some handles on how they can take some of that and do what they need to do better. But first off, how are you today? I'm amazing. Well, that's good to hear. It's a great day so far. So three different companies. Tell us about those. Uh, <laughs> it probably sounds more impressive than it actually is. The Excel Institute has been around for about a dozen years, and that organization was started in business with the idea of, I, I have this passion for growth, and we believed that what has the biggest impact on growth of individuals and teams in business are the respective leader or coach of that team. We needed to quantify that. We needed to understand more about it. To give you an example, uh, in, in sales, using that as an example, in a sales department, you know, a sales team typically gets all the resources. They get all kinds of things for improvement and growth. And But if you ask executives and say, hey, there's a growth and performance of teams a reflection of how the people in those teams are coached. And they will unequivocally, 100% of the time, say, oh, yes, absolutely, they are, Bill, good. Then if their performance is based on how well they're coached, then why is it the coaches get no attention? We track where salespeople go for a cup of coffee. We don't, but organizations track if they stop for, for at a Starbucks. They know if they got a donut in the morning. They put GPSs in their car. They know everything about their day but they can't tell you where the managers were last week or last month, certainly three months ago. So it's an interesting dichotomy. So we, we kind of started this business with the idea of changing that. Not that employees need less attention, they need more attention, but they need it from their leaders and they need it the right way. So that spawned that. And then from that, we kind of got sucked into athletics and education. And so we measure athletic coaches' impact on the student athlete and we measure teachers' impact on the students in the classroom. Well, I can't wait to break all of this down. I'm one of those people that believe that you should learn everything you can, and then you should share that with as many people as you come in contact with, or in my case, as many people that want to listen to me. I think that is a definition loosely of what a coach is. How would you define what a coach is? You know, that's a really good question because Everybody always talks about, you know, coaching has become a, a pretty strong buzzword. Anytime there's a problem employee, unfortunately, it's usually what it's associated with. Well, you got to coach them up. You know, you, you got to be a better coach. Well, coach seems synonymous with intervention anytime there's a problem. We look at coach as someone who creates trusting relationships, one who creates the best systems and structures and then one who creates challenge for the people on their team. And those are, so that's pretty long definition, but I think the gap between what we define as a coach versus a leader is we believe great coaches have great leadership characteristics. Great coaches know when it's appropriate to manage. That's why we hate the term manager. Great coaches um, know when to motivate. They know how to motivate. They are in charge and accountable. They're great recruiters. They know how to identify and acquire talent, develop talent. And the biggest distinction is between a coach and a leader is a coach has people that report to them. I can be a follower and, and have great leadership skills, you know, and, and have leadership behaviors. Coach, you got to have a team, whether it's two or whether it's 20. I think most companies out there have a sales department, and, and I love talking about the sales department because it's probably the most dysfunctional department a company has. So let's say somebody just is a rock star in sales. So he gets recognized, he or she gets recognized, and then they get promoted. So they were really good out in the field working with customers, and now all of a sudden they're a manager. But as you said, most of the time they don't get any extra training on the skills that they need to lead this new team of people that they're now put in charge with. How should that process go? Wow, that's another really good question, Trace. Well, first of all, let me back up. To be a coach versus a player 
is uh, a completely different talent, completely different skill. Do I think it helps to have to play the game, to coach the game? Heck yes. Uh, I really do believe that. I, I think my learning curve is shortened if I have been in sales and then I move into a sales leadership role or a coaching role, as we would say. But in our research, we see that only 4 to 5% of salespeople have the ability to be a great coach in sales, great leader in sales. I'm going to use this synonymously. Only 4 to 5%. That means 95 to 96% of salespeople should either stay in sales or go somewhere else in a company. But they shouldn't be moved into a coaching role. And too often, that's where leadership thinks, well, I need to show this salesperson, I need to reward them for high production. Well, a move up a proverbial corporate ladder is not a reward for doing your job well. That is simply a way of advancement. As a salesperson, I can advance by selling more stuff, by making more money. There's all different ways I can continue to grow. It doesn't need to be through moving me into a coaching role, especially if I am not equipped to be a great coach. So how should that process go ideally? Well, ideally, they would be really assessing their talents to see if they have the talent to be a great coach. Unfortunately, most often, when we work with organizations, the people are already in the role. And the only way to understand how effective one is as a coach when they're in a coaching role is to measure it, is to quantify it. To head that off, you would have to assess on the front end. You'd have to do the proper interviews on the front end. And one of the things, you know, it, as simple as it sounds, we, we recommend to organizations, quit calling in managers. What if that first level of leadership were called a coach? So I'm a sales coach now. I'm no longer a salesperson instead of a sales manager. And I really wonder how many fewer people would actually apply for or want that job. Okay, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I'm a coach. I'm not a manager. Yes. Huh. I like to manage people. <laughs> so I don't know. But there are certainly a few things they can do on the front end. And then once they get there, the only way is to quantify how good they are. In your book, I believe you cover this, but you talk about the difference between coaching, leading, and managing. How should we look at those terms? First of all, the term manager or management really is an archaic term. It was developed um, in the industrial era in our country. And think no further than Ford's assembly line. It was all about inputs and, and predictable outcomes. You know, if we put A, B, and C in, we should get D, E, and F out. And if that strayed, there was a problem with the input. And it took in no account for the leader of those teams, for the for the human dynamic in those teams. Back then, we didn't understand that there's this concept of discretionary effort that if I have a boss, you know, who's coaching through fear, they could still get discretionary effort out of me, but it's probably not going to last, especially in today's world. Back then, it, it could last. Jobs were hard to get. You know, it was an employer's market. Now it's an employee's market. And guess what? You want to coach me through fear? I'm out of there. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to a place of positive psychology. I'm going to a place that comes from love. I'm going to work for a team and people that, that really want to help me grow. And then I want to give back to the company that way as well. Again, the whole leadership and coaching thing, the dynamic there is coaches always have teams. And there's so many leadership models and so many philosophies on how to lead what great leaders do. And from a coaching perspective, we focus really on that dynamic between the coach and the player, whether it's in business, sport, or classroom. So I'm sure there are people out there that are on the hiring staff. Maybe this company has a hiring committee or however they do it. And they're thinking, wait a second, I need to change my mindset on who I put in this leadership position. So what should they be now doing to make sure they find the right coach for that position? You know, again, that gets back to, I think, properly assessing. That, in my mind, is where it begins. And then that coupled with structured interviews, uh, experiential interviews, experiential questions, 
you can get a pretty good read to combat it on the front end. And there are simple things like, give me an example of where you took time away from your daily activities to go help another employee. And if they got to sit there and go, oh, wow, um, gee, give me a minute here. I'm sure there's a time idea. You know, their pension isn't towards coaching. It's not towards development. So I think there's a series of things they can do uh, from, from a science, more of a data perspective to help them find who those people are. So based on that, the number one quality you're looking for is their willingness, their desire to help others. Well, when we quantify this, we're, we're more looking at what they do today. So what, what, what are the greatest coaches doing today to get the most discretionary effort out of the people on their teams? That, that's really where our focus is. We're not in the assessment um, on the front end. So what we see uh, in terms of what great coaches are doing, there's a set of behaviors and activities that are not earth shattering, but they do them consistently and they do them really, really well. And all of an emphasis on the well, for example, one-on-one meetings, great coaches, they do one-on-one meetings consistently with the people on their teams. They give feedback. When I say feedback, not just oral feedback, but they give consistent written feedback. They hold consistent team meetings and they do career development plans and conversations with people on their team. And and right now, people are probably hearing that going, well, GBL, we do all that stuff. Yeah, it's not rocket science, but how often do they do it? How well do they do it? Can you quantify it? Because if you tell a bad coach, someone who acts like a manager, if you tell that person, hey, I've been reading this great book on what great coaches do, says you should do more one-on-ones, go do that. You might be creating negative discretionary effort because if you put a bad coach in front of me and tell that coach to spend more time with me, I'm going to do less work. I'm going to be less productive. So the quality of those activities is more important than the quantity of those activities. And when we look at quality traits, we're looking at things like a coach's ability to create trust-based connections, the psychological safety they create on their teams. Have they put in the proper structures? Are they developing the skill sets of the people on their team? Are they challenging the people on their team in a healthy way? And are they communicating properly? So there are six behavioral aspects that are quantifiable that are more important than the actual activities of what great coaches do. How do you know what the right interval is? Is a year too long where weekly is too often, or is that different for each person? You know, that's, a, that's a, uh, some time ago, we couldn't have answered that. Now we can. When we look across the highest performing coaches, um, both in sales, doesn't matter now because we started in sales and now it's IT and HR and operations and, you know, uh, marketing all the way through. The highest growth, highest performing coaches do one-on-ones every other week. Not more for you. I I think a lot of people think they would do them every week. They didn't. But here's what's interesting. During the pandemic, they moved them to weekly. They knew intuitively. They just knew that, hey, I need, my people need more of me now. But, you know, sans pandemic, the highest performing, we're doing it every other week. Team meetings, everybody thinks, well, weekly team meetings are the most productive. They're not. It's not. The great ones do monthly. They do them monthly. Again, they were went to every other week during the pandemic, but it's not the fact that they were less frequent. It's the fact that they do them differently. So there is a frequency, there is a cadence to them, but there's, like I said, the quality is, is more important than the cadence. Now, you mentioned the pandemic. A lot of us moved from in-person meetings to Zoom-style meetings what should change on that format from a regular in-person meeting? You know, really nothing, which is a, a very good question because one of the things we've been fortunate enough is because we started off working in sales departments, most of our clients are people who have all their employees remote anyway. You know, I, I could be a coach and I live in Denver and I got salespeople in Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Phoenix, you know, so on and so forth. 
So these people, we've been studying this for years. They've been re- managing, leading, coaching remote workforces for a long, long time. And the funny part is, I think everybody thinks that, well, Zoom, now we have to change what we do. No, we don't. It can be operated the same way. It's just that fewer people want to do it that way. Coaches that used to do it in person is like, well, I don't know what to do and I'm no good at it or, or I'm just going to ignore it. And you can't do that. So it's still having, and this gets back to that structure component, having the disciplines to do what's right, even in the face of adversity, which is what COVID was and is. Providing we have the right leader, we have the right coach, and they're now in charge of a team, what are some things that they absolutely have to be looking at to know that they have a healthy team? The only way they're truly going to know is to measure it, to quantify it. And we've tried this. If you ask leaders what they do well and and what what they feel healthy teams are like, they're not very accurate. They just, they're not. So the only way to, to, to know whether a team is healthy is to quantify it. And the way you quantify it is by serving the employees on that team. It's, it's a bottom-up measurement. It's not side-to-side. It's not top-down. It's not a 360. It's a bottom-up measurement. And that's the only way to get an accurate understanding of whether or not you have a healthy team dynamic and a high-growth and high-performing team dynamic. What are some of the things that should be on that survey? Now, now we get back to those six themes in terms of quality that I was talking about earlier. It's really understanding First and foremost, do I have trust connections with the people on my team? Well, most every leader will tell you, oh, yes, of course I do. Yes, I trust my people. They trust me. Well, guess what? On a 100-point scale, our average trust connection score within businesses is only a 74. I think that's right. I think it's a 74, 76, somewhere in there. That's not very good. And when people get these results back, so often they look at them and they say, Oh my gosh, uh, I can't believe I thought my people trust. Don't they know how much I care? And my response is usually the same. No, they don't, because you don't show them how much you care. So trust connections are one of the things that absolutely have to be quantified. Psychological safety, come on. I mean, in the workplace today, in athletics, in the classroom, to not understand whether or not you're creating a psychologically safe environment for people to perform, you're missing out. You could be holding people back, you're holding growth back, you're holding performance back by not providing the most psychologically safe environment you can. And the funny part is nobody knows whether or not they have that environment. They hope they do, they want it, but it's like everything else. If you don't measure it, you don't know. So what question would you pose on the survey to get the right responses on trust? I'd have to pull up our, our survey to to give you some examples, but here's one. I think this comes from that section of it, which is my supervisor, we'll use that term, asks about my life outside of work. My supervisor cares about me as a person, not just an employee. I can share some things with my supervisor I can't share with other team members. See, here's what I love about those questions. As a leader, that puts me in a different mindset. And it's, it's allowing me to think of, am I doing these things? How am I really showing people that I do care? And, and I've got to tell you, we do have an assessment. I don't know if they list those questions out so well, uh, as you just put, but it allows me to get good feedback from my people, but at the same time, too, make sure that I'm doing the things so they can answer those in the way that I would hope that they would answer them. It's an interesting point because the way we do this has evolved, and our director of research is, you know, her background, she's master's in sociology and research methodology. So one of the things, one of the challenges we see is, is, you know, at a basic level, and I'm not impugning you for doing this. As a matter of fact, I applaud people for when they do this, is don't develop surveys on your own because you don't know if they're statistically accurate or correct. And if you're giving them out personally or handing, you know, you're probably not getting accurate answers. And then our survey has evolved in a way to where every single question is an actionable question. 
And it's about the dynamic that exists between boss and employee. It's 100%. Every single question that is asked is something that a, a coach could look at and go, oh, I can change that. I can absolutely take actions to, to get a different response from the people on my team. So I think making them actionable uh, is really, really important. Because what's interesting to me is things like engagement focus on outcome. We focus on input. What creates that outcome? And that's really, we know more than anything else. And you know this too, I'm sure, Trace, that what has the biggest impact on whether I stay with you, whether I leave you, whether I'm engaged with you, whether I give you discretionary effort, more than anything else has to do with the relationship between my coach and me. And if that's not healthy, you're not getting the most out of me. If you're not getting the most out of me, we're leaving performance on growth on the table. You probably have statistics to this. Most employers think people leave for more money, but that's probably not the case. What's the real number why people leave? Gallup puts out numbers on that. Their numbers, I think 70% uh, of the reason is always because of the boss is 70%. I would tell you, I believe, I believe uh, just through subjective analysis in the years in, in business and now in athletics and in the classroom, I think it's every bit of that, arguably even more so in the world of sport. A term you like to use is leadership effectiveness. What is that? <laughs> Actually, I like coaching effectiveness more. <laughs> All right, we can use that, coaching effectiveness. It's my ability to to create discretionary effort. It's It's sometimes just that simple. Do people work an extra hour because of me as their coach? Are they more engaged? Do they make an extra phone call? Are they nicer to the person next to them? Do they ask more questions? Are they more curious? And if the team will do that without me as their coach, then why am I there? Why have managers in business if the teams will produce as much if they weren't there? So that is what effectiveness is for us. And, and that getting back to why that can now be quantified. Those things used to be soft skills, didn't they, Trace? Yeah, you would just think somebody would come in and they would put in the extra work and that was the expectation. But you're really getting to the reason why they would want to do that. Right, exactly. And, and things like trust connections. If you had brought that up 20 years ago, people say, oh, that's a soft skill. You know, psychological safety. Really? Psychological safety? Yeah, it's a soft skill. You know, you got to challenge your people, soft skill. They're not. The difference between soft skills and now what, are, what, are, what we call hard skills is if they can be measured and if you can quantify them. So let me ask, what are some of the things that a leader should measure themselves around that? And then what are some things that the leader should be looking at from the people that they are leading? In terms of what measures the leader should look at, it is those themes. It's what you do and what you say. I mean, every employee looks at you through your eyes. It's based on what you do and what you say. So if our research shows what you do, there's a lot of things you do in a given day. But what most impacts me on your team is whether you do one-on-one -on -one meetings with me, whether we hold you know effective team meetings, you know, those four areas, those four activities. What you say, what how you behave is really around those six themes. Do you create relationships of trust? Do you create psychological safety? Do you put in the proper structures? Do you develop my skills? Do you push me and challenge me outside of what the norms might be, you know, so on and so forth? In terms of how do I evaluate my team? Well, that's what feedback is all about. I mean, let's face it. On the athletic field, a quarterback coach can grade every single practice, every single snap, of both the practice and the game, a quarterback's skill level, can't they? In business, though, if you ask someone in marketing to say, hey, what are the metrics around your marketing, your digital marketing manager in terms of their performance, they should be able to tell you. Can they tell you that in IT? Can they tell you that in operations? They usually can in sales because sales metrics, everybody knows, right? Number of calls, number of opens, number of closes, number of presentations, right? Whatever those are. But there's also quality metrics they should be looking at too. So every coach should have a series 
of key indicators that track progress and growth for the people on their teams. And they need to document those. And I don't mean in a review. I'm not talking about a review. I mean, again, when we look at the world of sport, even at the collegiate level, Trace, I've worked with the gymnastics team. They can do an event in practice, just a little routine on an event in practice, have it graded and videoed, and they can come off the apparatus and go watch it. We had an intern who was a diver at a Big Ten school, and she said in practice, every dive they took was graded and filmed. But in business, the high-performing coaches, they give feedback once a quarter, and most are not even willing to do that of the low performers. So in athletics, they get it every day. In business, most people say, I can't even do it once a quarter. (laughs) And by the way, that activity, providing great, proper, objective feedback, is the number one tool that has the strongest correlation to discretionary effort, the number one coaching tool. And very few people are willing to do it. So what does that look like? How do we get what the young lady experienced in diving to a sales community? We've got a lower performer. They're, they're not doing the things that they probably could be doing to be a better performer. There's no camera. How do, we, how do we bring the camera that she got on the diving board into the boardroom or wherever they're doing their pitch? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. And you're right, there's no camera. So what is the camera? It's my coach being with me. It's that sales leader being out in the field with those sales producers watching, listening to to truly be a coach. So when they're done, they can ask the right questions and then provide the best feedback. The difference is most people want to do that only orally, right? They get out of a sales call and they walk on and say, hey, what'd you think? Yeah, I thought we kicked rear end and took names. Yeah, baby, let's go. What are we going to do in this next call? Well, we're going to go see Jar. All right, let's, let's rock this call. And that granted, that's a pretty, you know, hyperbolic way to view it. But what should happen after every call, there should be oral synthesis, right? What do you think went well? What would you have done differently uh, if we went back in that call? Why would you do that differently? Or what specifically, when this, when this, you asked this question earlier and the prospect or client responded this way, would you ask the question that same way again? Great, because how did he respond? You know, so, so you're really drilling into asking questions. And then once a quarter, you document it written on a one to five scale, write down what they do well and their opportunities for growth. Because how do you know when to grow if nobody's telling you? And if you can't see it and read it, how do I know how to get better? And people are so afraid of that. Is the way to get over that fear just to start doing it? It gets back to my TED talk, right? It it makes me uncomfortable. So the only way to get over discomfort is to do it over and over again. We call it being in a complex environment. The only way to create growth is through discomfort. I, I mean that literally. The only way to create growth is through discomfort. And so many coaches, which is interesting, when you ask, why don't you do written feedback anymore? It's just too tough. It's too hard. It takes too much time. Or it makes my people uncomfortable. <laughs> You'll hear that too. Yeah, and the truth is it probably makes them uncomfortable. Exactly. To tell somebody on a scale of one to five, they're a one or a two. I mean, that's not what I go to bed dreaming about. Oh, how much I love to do that. But if I really am a great coach and I'm really invested in helping my people grow, they need to hear that if that's what they are. So we started this conversation off around the word coaching really is a pejorative that, oh, uh, Bill shows up late all the time. Trace, you need to go coach him, make sure that he can get here on time. But everything that we've talked about, it's about building others up according to their needs. And I'm, I'm sure that there is, and I'm going to use the term a manager out there, that they maybe got promoted because they were the best salesperson. And now they're the sales manager. And they're thinking, this is the missing element of what I'm doing. I need to start acting like a coach. What would you say the first thing that they need to do to, to make that shift so they are coaching the people that they lead? First and foremost, is show, me, show them you care. Show them you care about them as people, not just employees. Ask about their life outside of work. Get to know them. Know the names of their kids and their dogs. Understand their goals professionally, personally. That, first and foremost, is, is foundational to being a great coach. Because without trust, 
without developing those connections of trust, you have no platform on which to build. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to feel safe around you. So psychological safety is down. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to follow your structures and processes as well as your structure score goes down. If I don't trust you, you're going to push me and challenge me. And I think you're a jerk because I don't think you're in it for me. I think you're in it for you. So that's where it has to begin. Are there any famous leaders that you can refer to and say, this is the quality that I'm referring to, and this is the result that they received? Most of them, Trace, are people nobody knows. Because the real famous people I haven't interviewed, I haven't been in there studying them, I haven't tracked their behaviors, I haven't interviewed the people that reported to them. So it's the day in, day out business leaders and coaches that we've studied that we've supported, that I want to look at and say, and and thank, and just say, man, there's some of you, I would tell my kids to go be on your team. That's how much I trust you. Because I know you would challenge and love my kids and help them grow. Now, on the surface level, when I think back, this will age me a little bit, uh, but General Norman Schwarzkopf was someone who, you know, I saw actually shed tears on camera, but I also know how tough he was. And he showed everything from wonderful empathy to, to wonderful connections and certainly provided, you know, challenges people to perform at the highest level. So that would be a person in terms of just that I don't know, but I looked at and I thought he embodied all of those things. Can you share with us one of your biggest success stories? Wow, how deep do we want to go on this? Um, you know, I think if you, if you were to ask most people, they would say, oh, Bill's big, it would be his TED Talk that went viral. But that's not what I would say. My biggest success story is understanding and tapping into the power of my mind five years ago, four years ago, and what that's done for me uh, physically, what it's done for me mentally. Yeah, my biggest success story is is really putting my emphasis there. If you could only stress and get one point across today to the Scaling Up Nation, what do you want that point to be? Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable because we have to learn to spend part of our each day in a state of discomfort if we want to grow. You know, the old, don't, don't look at yourself and think to yourself, wow, I'm the same guy I was 20 years ago. Oh my goodness. That means you haven't evolved. Don't take pride in that. Take pride in how you've evolved. Take pride in the way your thinking's evolved. Take pride in how your mental self has evolved. And the only way that's going to evolve is if you spend a little time each day in a state of discomfort. And whether that's discomfort physically, discomfort mentally, or in my case, I recommend all of the above, create a little growth every day doing that. Well, Bill, I have enjoyed asking you all of these questions, but I still have some questions left. Are you ready for the lightning round? (laughs) I think. (laughs) You know what? Whether I'm ready or not, your audience will know. (laughs) There we go. So you now have the ability to go back in time and talk with your former self on your first day in a coaching role. What advice would you give yourself? I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would give my – because – it's the learning. It's too often. I think we want to go back and say, well, what would we change? What would we fix? And all those mistakes, as well as successes in that journey, comprise who I am today. And if I knew how to eliminate those, I wouldn't be who I am today. So I think I would go back, look at my former self, and say, enjoy the ride. I don't think anybody's ever answered the question that way. And I have to tell you, I absolutely love it. My next question is what are the last few books that you've read? Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl uh, is one. What a profound book. I was introduced to that book, Reading the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think it's only 90-something pages, but wow. Yeah, it's Viktor Frankl is an amazing, a remarkable person. So that, that, that's one. Another a good friend and colleague by the name of Dr. Larry Widman wrote a book uh, called Max Out Mindset. And I'm spending part of my time doing some work with athletic teams on a volunteer basis, not just in a business setting. I love the psychology of growth and the mental aspect of it. So those are my two most recent. And Bill, I have to ask you about your book. Tell us about that. 
<laughs> the coaching effect. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, it's fun. We, we had clients and people tell us for years, you guys should write a book. You guys should write a book. And finally, uh, what I did is the president of our company, I, she and I had written some stuff together, like e-articles and journal articles and things like that, that we had co-authored. So I took some of our work and, um, and after visiting with a, a series of people that had written books and then gotten online and just done all my due diligence, everybody said, and everything we had, I had read was, hey, start the journey because you're going to get turned down and you really got to start it. And eventually you'll probably, if you're good, you'll find somebody that wants to write your book. So I did my due diligence and went to all different, or investigated all different publishers, took our work. And without her knowing, because getting back to one of the activities in our career development conversations, she had, I said, what's one of your dreams one day? And she said, I would like to either author or co-author a book. And I took note of that. And a year later, I took some of the work we did together. And after all my due diligence, I submitted it to a publisher. And the publisher didn't reject it. He came back, they, they came back and said, well, you made the first cut. And I was like, whoa, oh, well, that's nice. And I figured maybe I should go tell Sarah now. <laughs> and um, a month later, uh, after what they call editorial review, the publisher came back and said, we want you to write a book with us. So it was our first try. And so the coaching effect is really about what great coaches do. Now it's written for business, so it doesn't has some athletic examples, but it's based on the research where we researched and quantified the interactions of over 100,000 interactions between bosses and employees in the workplace. What did we learn from that? So that's what we share in the book, what the greatest coaches are doing, what activities, what behaviors, and what you can do tomorrow to begin your journey on growth. Well, I will be sure to put a link to that on our show notes page. And please tell me there's an audible recording of that. There is. And we tried to use our own voices and they, will, they wouldn't let us. <laughs> but yes, there is. Well, I think that was a mistake because I've enjoyed listening to you this entire hour and I can't imagine it could be any better without your voice. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. All right. My next question, eventually Hollywood's going to find out about Bill's life. Who plays Bill? <laughs> um, so with that, in, at the risk of sounding arrogant, if you were to ask my oldest daughter who plays Bill, she would tell you George Clooney. I can see that. And I think it's because of the hair. I can definitely see that. <laughs> Great choice, too. I'm sure he's waiting on the script. My final question, you now have the ability to speak with anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? I think it would be Viktor Frankl. I would just love to continue to pick his brain as to how we can take what he lived through and help others on this journey. Because some things have evolved. I would just, I, I would, yeah, it would be Viktor Frankl. So many, so many lives can be changed and touched and positively impacted if they knew the power of their mind and how to access that. And that's one of the things he was really on the cutting edge of. Well, I think you've allowed a lot of people that might have been mediocre in coaching the people that they're in charge of to think a little differently today and unlock some of the powers that you just suggested that Viktor Frankl has the, the ability to do. And uh, I'm sure several people are going to read your book to try to find out more of what they can do. If they want to go beyond that, how can they contact you? Well, thank you for that. Uh, BillExtrom.com is my personal website. Our company website is Excel, E-C-S-E-L-L, Institute.com. I am active on LinkedIn. I'm active on Twitter and Instagram. And anytime anybody reaches out, I respond. You know, that I, I just do. That's, you know, after the TED Talk, I think I, I can't, I have had hundreds of people reach out personally and either thank me or ask me questions about it. I can honestly say, with the exception of one where it got creepy, I responded to every single person throughout the world. So I have to ask you about the creepy now. I, you know, I'm not, <laughs> you're the second person who's wanted to know that. Um, I can't remember exactly the dynamic that took place, but I remember forwarding it to my daughter saying, and she's like, all right, get out of this in a hurry, you know, get, d delete this. <laughs> so I don't know where it was going, but anyway, she was watching, she had my back. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, are you okay if I link your TED Talk to our show notes page as well? 
Of course. It's called Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. And there you have it. Wait, thanks so much for being a guest on Scaling Up H2O. Thank you, Trace. Nation, that was a very informative interview. I know I've always thought of myself as a coach, but I think Bill gave me some terminology and some phrasing around that that really shaped how we as leaders need to think of ourselves. And as I mentioned during our interview, just hearing some of the questions that he was asking the people that we lead instantly make me think of how I should be leading them. What should I be doing so they could answer those questions in the most positive way that they could? And am I showing them that vulnerability? We started the show by talking about vulnerability, but if you're not vulnerable, they're not gonna be vulnerable. If if you're not challenging them to grow, well, they're gonna go seek that elsewhere. If you're not giving them the things that they need, the things that they want, and everything that we talked about today was all around you. Are you giving the people you lead the gift of you? And I'm really curious to hear how you've taken today's interview and made your team better because now you're working on yourself. And how is your better self now going to build a better team? Something that Bill mentioned was Viktor Frankl. And uh, Viktor Frankl has come up before on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. As I mentioned to Bill, I first became familiar with Viktor Frankl when I read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you're a listener of this podcast, you know that is beyond a doubt my favorite book. I have learned so much from that book. It has allowed me to work within myself better. And because I now have a better command of myself, I can now work with other people better. And the results that we get working together is far superior because I know all of these things that Dr. Covey teaches in The Seven Habits. And he will very modestly say that he did not come up with The Seven Habits. He discovered The Seven Habits. Well, habit one is be proactive. And habit one is all about we get to choose our response to things that happen to us. And he uses, and when I say he, Dr. Stephen Covey, he uses Viktor Frankl as the example of being able to choose what happens to him. Now, he was a prisoner. He was being held captive because he was Jewish and he lived in Nazi Germany. And they did these horrible sterilization experiments on his body. And if you can just imagine uh, a young Viktor Frankl who's stripped naked uh, with these harsh, bright lights uh, illuminating his private parts and all around him, and, and these doctors, these Nazis were doing experiments on his genitalia. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Well, it was during these experiments that he got the idea that his captors were holding him captive. So he didn't have freedom to leave. But the true freedom that he had was in his mind. And when they were experimenting on him, he would actually, he was a professor, and he would take his mind and he would lecture about what they were doing in a class that he hadn't taught yet. And Nation, that's just so hard to comprehend, knowing what he went through. But all this really happened. And he eventually did lecture on that, but he did it first in his mind. And his mind was able to take him to a place separate from his body. And it was all because he was choosing to be proactive. Now, that's the biggest extreme I have ever heard of that. And we'll go ahead and put a link to an Amazon link, uh, an affiliate link for the Viktor Frankl book that was mentioned 
And I tell you, it's it's a short read. It is a very, very profound read. And it's going to change the way you think about things that might inconvenience you and how you react to some of those things. Anyway, I just felt I had to tell you, the Scaling Up Nation, a little bit about that book because it did mean a lot to me and it was mentioned by Bill. Something else Bill mentioned was his TED Talk. So I've got a link to his TED Talk directly on my show notes page. I know you're out there driving from account to account. Don't worry, I've got a link directly to that. And Bill talks in his TED Talk all about growth through discomfort. And when you think about Habit One, that's what that's all about. You know, after... Uh, Stephen Covey talks about Viktor Frankl. He talks about two circles, the circle of concern and the circle of influence. And most of us live our lives in the circle of concern, things that concern us, but we really don't have any direct influence over. And I think what Bill is saying is that if we work on the outer edge of the circle of influence, that's uncomfortable. And if we do those uncomfortable things and we force ourselves to do them because we know that's where growth will happen, that circle will get bigger. And the things that concern us, now we have influence over. And if we keep working on that outer edge of the circle influence, more and more things that concern us, we will have influence over. So Bill, once again, thanks for coming on Scaling Up H2O. The tools that you gave us, I think, really allowed us to think about how we should be leading people differently, and it all starts with us leading ourselves. You know, a lot of us are leading ourselves and becoming better in the chosen profession that we do every day. And a gentleman that helps us do that is James McDonald. Here's a brand new James's Challenge. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James's challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional, drop by drop, is look for dead legs in your water systems. Now, I'm not talking zombie apocalypse here. I'm talking areas of low flow standing water within your water systems. This may be links of unused piping waiting for future system expansion or leftover from equipment removal. It may be redundant systems waiting for their turn to operate. Dead legs can be breeding grounds for unwanted microbiological activity to continually inoculate the water system even after what you thought was an effective disinfection. Don't let dead legs ruin your day. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. Thanks, James. Well, Nation, in just one short week, we will be celebrating Industrial Water Week. I love Industrial Water Week because it's our holiday. It is the holiday for the Industrial Water Treater. And on Monday, October 4th, we're going to be celebrating pre-treatment. On Tuesday, boilers. Wednesday, cooling. Thursday, wastewater. And Friday, careers. We do something a little different each and every Industrial Water Week. I know you're going to enjoy some of the things that we're doing this year, but the bottom line is, is we cannot celebrate without you. So I want you to show us how you are celebrating each and every day by posting your pictures, by hashtagging IWW21 and hashtagging scaling up H2O. Folks, I can't wait to bring you a brand new episode next week. And folks, if you saw me here at the convention, thank you so much for stopping in and letting me know what this show means to you. If you didn't see me here, 
by all means, let me know those things too. Let me know what you want the next show to be by going to scalinguph2o.com and go over to our show ideas page, or you can leave me a voicemail asking your question. Nation, have a great week. Take care of each other and be the best water treater you can be. Nation, it's hard to improve the day-to-day when we are stuck living in the day-to-day. And for one hour a week, you can join the group at the Rising Tide Mastermind so you can work on the business without being in the business. That one hour will change every other hour of the week. It's magic. It's not magic. It's how we get together. It's how we process issues. It's how we encourage each other. And it's how we just form these common bonds around each other. And there's a camaraderie that I promise you will not find anywhere else. To find out more about the Rising Tide Mastermind, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.